Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. I'm your host, Marie G.G., and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications consultant, I can turn a piece of lackluster, jargon-filled, or technical prose into clear, dynamic narrative. When I'm not doing that, I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help revamping or creating your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. Each week, I alternate this Finding Fertile Ground podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care, which is about business leaders working to make this a better world for all. On both of my podcasts, I strive to highlight voices from underrepresented populations, especially people of color, women, people who are LGBTQIA, non-Christian, and immigrants, the people who don't always get a platform. This week, I'm cross-posting on both of my podcasts because I interviewed Lisa Schroeder, executive chef and owner of Mother's Bistro and Bar in Portland, and she has a huge story of grit and resilience, and she's created a company that cares. I hope you will check out Companies That Care for more interviews like this one. You can find information about both podcasts on my website and social media. Mother's Bistro and Bar is one of my favorite restaurants in Portland. Lisa is a mother, grandmother, chef, restaurateur, and author devoted to providing better-than-authentic renditions of traditional home-cooked dishes at a popular award-winning restaurant. Lisa is an incredibly hard worker, as all executive chefs are, and she had to work twice as hard as a woman in the kitchen to be taken seriously. Tragically, five years ago, her beloved daughter died in a hiking accident. Now she's a mother without a living child, which is especially bittersweet given that she's built an outstanding brand around being a mother and honoring mothers. Mother's days are especially difficult. Let's hear Chef Lisa's story. Hello, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining Companies That Care. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's such an honor to be able to talk to you. I've been a huge fan of Mothers for many years and a big fan of yours as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. So let's start out by telling our listeners how you got here. What is your story? What led you down this career path? Well, I have always had to work because I was raising my daughter and had to support us and started a job in um, marketing, which uh, then evolved to a job with Weight Watchers International in in Philadelphia. Oh my goodness, where was I? I was in New York, (laughs) in New York. And I was working there for a number of years, but really marketing was not my passion. And I I was doing cooking on the side, reading everything I could about food, catering on the side, and just doing a lot of cooking. And I didn't see how I could continue on and grow in a marketing position. I had a choice. I was either going to go to law school or get my MBA or something. And I didn't know what it was at the time. And then I went to visit the Culinary Institute of America and I was smitten. I saw that my part-time hobby could be a full-time career if I could only get to that school. And it was just an amazing campus. And it was just so thrilling to see that one could cook all day long and possibly make a living. So I got to the point where I either had to apply, I was going to either apply to law school or the Culinary Institute. I had both of the applications in my hand and had to write the essay. 
And the one for law kind of was really a struggle to write because I knew in my heart of hearts, I wouldn't be able to practice the kind of law I would have wanted, which would be to help women like me who struggled to get child support. And the one for the Culinary Institute kind of rolled off my pen. And I applied to the culinary, but I didn't know, you know, again, how am I going to support my daughter? How am I going to be able to go to school and raise her? And then basically an atom bomb hit my life. And my husband had an affair with my best friend. My daughter decided she wanted to go live with her father. And I got laid off from Weight Watchers International. So basically all the stars aligned to thrust me to the Culinary Institute. While I was still working at Weight Watchers, however, I did have the idea for mothers. I was working 13 hours at my job, trying to figure out what I was going to do for dinner for the family and struggling at seven o'clock. Like, what can I make happen? And, you know, oftentimes it was to go food, but it was um, always like, you know, Thai, Mexican, Chinese food. But I tried to find a place that would make mother food, the kind of food that I would make if I had the time to cook. There was no place around. And so as I applied to the CIA, the short for the Culinary Institute of America, <laughs> I was going there with the intention of someday opening up a restaurant called Mother's. I knew even before I started there that that would be the restaurant I would open. My husband at the time said, oh, why don't you just before he had the affair and we were still together, he said, oh, why don't you just open it? You don't need to go to school because, of course, he didn't want to support me in my career. And um, I just felt that I needed the credentials to be successful. And so when when life kind of allowed me to follow my passion, I went and took that opportunity and walked through that door. Oh, my gosh. What happened after you finished the culinary training? So I felt that, okay, I've, I've now gone to the best cooking school there is. Now I need to work in the best restaurants I can find. And so I tried to get a job at Le Bernardin, but they, I worked there for two weeks straight for free, but he just didn't have a position. So I walked straight from there to Le Cirque in New York City. And lo and behold, somebody had just quit and I got a job. And so I worked there for a year and they were going to close uh, to move. And so I took that opportunity to fly to Europe and stage that's like, you know, work for free in some restaurants in France and in Italy. And I also went to Morocco. So I looked at again as a golden opportunity to be able to earn my stripes, my cooking stripes. So after a year at a four-star restaurant in America, I then worked in some restaurants in France. Uh, tried to work in Italy, but they wouldn't let us work for free because they felt it was taking the job away from an Italian. So, But we did get a chance to tour and eat everywhere and try new things. And when I went to Morocco, again, I tried to work with some people and I did work with a couple women in a kitchen. And I really went to Morocco because... My ex-in-laws were Moroccan and I really was interested in that kind of food and to see it at its source. And I learned a valuable lesson when I went to Morocco. And that was that I thought I would go there to see the food at its source and go to the restaurants and try those foods. But what I learned is that the food of a country is not found in its restaurants. The food of a country is found in its homes made with love by the mothers. And so I had learned all that Moroccan cooking from my ex-in-laws and here I was in Morocco flying there to try to see it firsthand when I had it in my hand all along. And that was a really important lesson that if you want to eat the food of a country, you don't eat out in the restaurants. You go to the homes and you'll know what that food really is. 
And then what came next? How did you end up in Portland? And then, uh, so then I come back to America and I got a job back in New York at a restaurant called Les Benas, another four-star restaurant that was at the St. Regis Hotel, where I had also done my externship with Chef Greg Kunz. And I was working there and it was really tough. In order to be able to afford to live in New York City, I had to work two jobs. So I would work all day. I did that in my last year when I was at Le Cirque. I would work all day at Le Cirque, 12 hour days from six in the morning till about six at evening, run to my other job at a restaurant called Le Madre and wait tables until midnight. I worked 90 hours a week for a oh year. Oh my gosh. And that's why when people complain about doubles, I kind of laugh. I mean, are you kidding me? I, and I was, you know, in my thirties at the time, then I got a job at Le Cirque and also did some waiting tables on the side to be able to afford to live in New York city. And when I had just gotten back from Europe, a friend of mine suggested I meet this fellow who was visiting from Portland and go see a friend of theirs perform music at a gallery in Manhattan. And I went there and I met this great guy from Portland and his name was Rob Sample. And we went out for pierogi at three o'clock in the morning at Kiev after the performance. And we basically hit it off. And I always knew that I would open up Mothers in a city other than New York. I just didn't know what the city was. And then when I met Rob and what a great guy he was, I thought, wow, maybe Portland is the place to go. And so we started a long distance relationship. And I, we would meet at different places in the country. You know, I went to New Orleans Jazz Fest or met in San Francisco, or he flew me to Portland. And I just decided that I had nothing to lose by coming out here and just seeing, A, if the relationship would work, but also Portland might be the perfect place for mothers. Did Portland need me? And so the last time I had visited him, I grabbed a, an Oregonian, uh, the newspaper, and I looked in the one ads. And back then they used to have one ads. <laughs> and um, I saw there was a job at a little cafe called B-Saws. <sighs> and I started a uh, the interview process. And I uh, basically got hired provisionally until I came out and took the job. And so I started there as a chef. That was my first chef job. And when I was working there, basically, I, I learned a lot about breakfast. You know, I never thought that breakfast would be my niche. And I really perfected my chefing skills and also my breakfast skills working at that restaurant. It was very popular for that. And so that kind of set me on the path of doing breakfast, lunch and dinner at the restaurant I was to open. After working at B-Sauce for two years, I realized it was time. I had earned my chef stripes. I learned what I needed to know about the city. It was time for me to start looking for a location. And I started to look and then I took a vacation for two weeks and came back. And when I came back, my Cisco salesman told me about a location that was available. It was at a place called the Irish Bank. They were looking to get out of it quickly. They were asking for very little money. And I went to look at it and I always swore that I would not have a kitchen that was unmanageable or tiny, or I wouldn't put my cooks through that torture. And sure enough, this restaurant, the Irish Bank looked so great. The corner was such a perfect location. The windows were double tall. It was beautiful, or at least it had potential to be beautiful in the dining room, but the kitchen was awful and I still <laughs> took it. 
The kitchen was awful, really. Oh, my goodness. It was like a railroad kitchen and it was tiny. And the dish pit was at one end and the prep and the kitchen, the main kitchen was at the other. And even though I swore I wouldn't do it, I had looked at so many locations and just couldn't find the right one. And this was the one. And so I gave my notice to my bosses and started to work as a server because I could make as much money as a server in half the time as I did as a chef. And that would allow me the time to work on opening the restaurant. And so I gave my notice and I started working at a Red Star Tavern while I was simultaneously finishing my business plan and trying to get funding for mothers. And I gave my notice in July and I opened Mother's Bistro and Bar in January of 2000. You know, the minute we turned our sign from closed to open, 90 people walked in the door And people say, oh, you were an overnight success. And I'm like, no, this was eight years in the making. I had the idea in 93 and every single thing I did from then on was working toward opening this restaurant of my dreams. So while we were successful off the bat, it was all through hard work and research and it didn't happen right away. It was eight years in the making. You are an insanely hard worker. (laughs) It's true. What a story. And the problem is, is I judge people by my ruler. <laughs> right. And so when they complain about, you know, a double, um, you know, I, I admittedly, I am not. Let me tell you. <laughs> you want to hear about doubles? I'll tell you about doubles. Yeah. yeah. So for people who are not from Portland or who don't know about mothers, tell our listeners what's unique about mothers. Well, Mothers serves home cooking from mothers around the world. And each month we feature the cuisine of a different mother. We tell her story and have her dishes. And, you know, when I was working on the menu, I wanted to have motherly staples, pot roast, chicken and dumplings, meatloaf and matzo ball soup, chopped liver, pierogi. So basically, if a mother would make it, we would serve it. But I knew that I wanted to keep those staples all the time. And I didn't want to take anything off the menu. So I was very challenged as how are we going to be seasonal? How are we going to keep life interesting for our cooks and the staff? And that's when I came up with that mother of the month idea. And so basically that allows us to be seasonal because we'll feature a Mediterranean mother in the summer months and a Ukrainian mother in the winter months. And it's ever changing. So it allows us to be creative. It allows us to learn new things. It gives our guests an incentive to come back after just one visit. So as I said, I did learn a lot about breakfast. So we did first open Mothers with Breakfast, but it didn't take off right away. And then we were just serving brunch on weekends. And then eventually people started to show up at our door during the week. And I said, okay, I guess it's time to uh, serve breakfast every day. And we haven't turned back on a busy Sunday. We will serve a thousand people between eight and two thirty. Now we have been in the same location since in the horrible location from 2000. And after almost 20 years, I just said, you know, we need to do something about this. It's so untenable for my staff. We would go downstairs for ice upstairs <laughs> for the office, you know, through the kitchen to get to the prep area. It was Africa hot. Uh, There was no way to make the kitchen cooler. And I was about to spend $500,000 on kind of trying to improve the air in the back of the kitchen and make life a little more tenable. When I thought I might want to do a pop-up while we were closed, because I anticipated we'd have to close for a few months while we did these renovations. And I came over to what was once the Portland Steak and Chop House, three blocks away. And I walked through the space and I said, wait a minute, why am I just going to do a pop-up here? 
This is a restaurant. This is set up the way it should be. It had a loading dock. Everything was on one floor. And I decided to throw everything up in the air. And rather than renovate my existing location, I decided to up and move. And so I had eight years left on my lease at the time. So it was pretty risky. But I thought, ah, I'll get it rented. It shouldn't be a problem. It's been a great location for me. And we spent the next eight months renovating this location. And we moved here in Martin Luther King Day of 2019. And it was a real success and people came through our doors and droves and it really was rewarding. And so we were so busy that at a certain point, you know, I'm not one to say, okay, we got to stop a little, but I did stop serving in a certain section of the restaurant because I realized it wasn't physically possible to do 1300 covers on a Sunday between eight and two 30. And it was a great success. And then COVID. That's when we got smacked upside the head and everybody got humbled and realized, okay, you think you're all that? Well, (laughs) let me show you. Did you ever find a renter for the other original? Well, we had, and she was going to move here from Korea and she was going to do Nouvelle Korean cuisine and she had given a deposit and she was only going to rent out half the space. But when COVID hit, she couldn't get to America and all the borders were closed. So she lost her money and I lost the tenant. And basically had to settle with the landlord to get out of the lease. I see. Right. I mean, I have to say, even though the kitchen was may have been awful in that space, the dining area was gorgeous. I just have yeah. to tell people that I loved the exposed brick and the chandelier and what you did with it. It was a beautiful space. It had evolved over the years. You know, we started on a shoestring. I did that with only $250,000. Wow. And then as we grew and business got better, I made improvements, bought more chandeliers, changed the chairs. You know, we, we grew with the space. But at a certain point, we were popping at the seams when people couldn't even get in the front door. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't open the front door on a busy brunch day to even get in line. There wasn't a lot of space there, was there, for the people? No, (laughs) it was just very funky and very hard to work with. And it was untenable. I really, something had to give. Yes. We'll talk about the pandemic a little bit later. But first of all, how are you as mothers, a company that cares? What's your company mission and culture? Well, you know, I didn't wait for Obamacare to have health benefits for my staff, okay? We had health benefits from day one. Everybody needs health care. And so that was provided if you worked 30 hours or more, you were entitled. So that's one way that I show that I care about my staff. Another thing is we had, you know, a week's vacation before it was required We have a 401k plan where I contribute 3% of whatever anybody puts away. And my staff becomes my family. I, you know, I invite them to my house for parties and events. We will do things together outside of the restaurant. I will listen to their personal problems. I lend them money a little too much and oftentimes don't see it back. You know, another way I care, I had an employee that was arrested by ICE and I paid the $15,000 to to his lawyer. I laid it out for him to get out of jail and to start to work toward getting a green card. So it's a company that's managed by a human, which has its pros and cons. You know, I take things personally if somebody doesn't show up for work because I give my all to them. But I have to learn how to separate that because I realize for others, you know, this is just a business and another place to just hang their hat. So, yeah, we are just it's run by a human who who is a mother and who tends to mother those around her. And that's one way I show that we care. 
I think I read on your website, you have a lot of longevity on your staff. Yeah, well, everybody, you know, after we reopened with COVID, everybody who's here has worked here before. So many people came back. Some have moved on, you know, they got better jobs. They went to work in a hospital or they moved to California or they're back in school and can't work. But a good majority did come back. And I'm grateful for that. And I know we are nothing without our staff. I know right now that cooks in particular are really in a shortage. It's hard to hire people right now in Portland. So that's great. You had some of your people come back. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the pandemic because you just reopened after shutting your doors. Can you share with listeners how you survived the pandemic and what measures you had to take to do so? I had heard that the pandemic was coming back in December of 2019. I was starting to read about Wuhan And I saw that one of the things people did was they relied heavily on delivery. And so I had already started to turn my wheels toward an online ordering system. I was anticipating this might be happening here. I thought that if people got sick, they would need my Jewish penicillin, my my chicken soup. And so I had every intention to stay open, even though we were shuttered for indoor dining. So when March 17th happened and they closed indoor dining in Portland, I remained open with takeout and delivery. But what I learned is, you know, mothers is the kind of cooking that people will do at home. If anybody's (laughs) going to make anything at home, it's going to be meatloaf and pot roast, but they aren't going to make Thai green curry or Chinese dumplings or sag paneer. So for the first three months, we stayed open until June. We did takeout and delivery, but we're losing money every month. And also the people I was employing was a fraction. I had 105 employees before we closed. And then I was employing 10 or 12. That wasn't the point. If I'm going to employ people, I want it to be a majority, not such a low amount. So then the protest started in early June after the death of George Floyd. And I had staff that couldn't get over the bridges to and from work. And so they were calling me and saying, do you really want us to come in? Do you really want to open? Because by then now nobody was going to order food. They weren't going to drive downtown to pick up the food. So I decided to call it. And on June 5th, I said, okay, we're just shutting the doors. I mean, I was losing 20,000 a month. My staff couldn't get to work. To turn our wheels for nothing really is not how I roll. So we closed and then we had some money in the bank when that happened. You know, we've been in existence for 20 years. We're not a fly-by-night organization. So we allowed us to cover some of our expenses. We had an amazing landlord at our current location that said, don't worry about the rent. We understand. My other landlord at the old location wasn't as understanding, and um, we had to work out an agreement between us. And then we did get a PPP loan, which sadly I could not use to bring people back because it did not make any sense to have people get off unemployment, turn their wheels for nothing. It just made no sense to me. So the money sat and we used it for some of the rent at the other location and to pay some medical expenses, you know, some health care for some people, you know, basically we couldn't use the PPP money and we're going to probably have to pay most of it back because it was really just to pay the random bills that kept on coming in. You still get an electricity bill. You still get a gas bill, even if just the pilots are going. And then all of my staff, to be honest with you, I think anybody in the food service industry looked at COVID as a blessing as well as a curse. Uh. And for many people who have worked their asses off in this industry, me included, to be able to get a break was a gift. 
That's why I think we're seeing a lot of people not jumping back to work right away. And I don't blame them. This is a hard business. It's very physical. It's very demanding. It's very stressful. And so everybody was pretty okay with just being on unemployment. Back in around March, we started to see that things were opening up, that the cases of COVID were going down, and then perhaps we should start to turn the wheels toward reopening. And they opened up for 50% dining at one point. You know, I stayed in touch with my staff throughout COVID. We did Zoom meetings every now and then. We're all friends on Facebook, so we all kept in touch. And I started to turn the wheels toward reopening in April, thinking I would not reopen. My promise was that I would not reopen unless it was 50% occupancy. Because at 50%, you can't get shut down. At 25%, the next way to go is shut. And so we started to turn the wheels and we were planning to open on April 29th. My staff gave notice to their other jobs. We convened and started to work about two weeks before April 29th. And then on April 26th, I either had to place the order for the deliveries to come in, the food deliveries to come in to be able to open that Thursday, the 29th, or not. And the cases of COVID were going up. They were in the high 700s. I had my ear to the ground and I was hearing rumblings that the governor was going to shut things down. And I made the call on the 26th not to order the food because by then it was a 25%. It had gone from in the middle of us preparing, the occupancy had gone from 50 to 25%. And sure enough, what I suspected could happen did. And the governor shut everything down on the 27th. So with that, I said, okay, we're not reopening. And I gave it a month before we're going to plan to reopen again, again, hoping to be at 50%. So we couldn't get shut down because that really, that inventory, that revving up and winding down Mm -hmm. can kill you. So uh, we made our plans to reopen on June 3rd, which we did uh, last Thursday. Yay. I'm so excited. (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) (laughs) What did it feel like? Because we had that extra month to prepare for the opening, I really did use that time to get my ducks in a row. I figured out what every station would be preparing on every day. I did order guides. I did mise en place lists, uh, which is everything in its place. I uh, figured out who we were buying from. I costed. And so by the the first time we were going to open, I was feeling a little stressed. But this time around, I felt like, nah, we got it. We'll do it. It'll be fine. But, you know, we did understaff thinking that, oh, we're not going to be that busy. And I was wrong. And I'm glad I was. That's great. And so in the meantime, you were homeschooling your grandchildren. That must have been a completely different thing. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, my daughter died in 2016 in a hiking accident. She was um, only 36 years old and a mother to four kids. And uh, when that happened, if there's one thing I could hear her saying in my ear is take care of my kids, take care of my kids. Her little ones were just about to turn four at the time. Oh, my gosh. And so I share guardianship with their father. But I decided since I was no longer working during COVID that I would take them five days a week and homeschool them since I had the time and he was working. So they're with me five days a week. And, you know, when my she first died, I said, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to drive them to school every morning because that's what I would do. I would even go to his house make them breakfast, make their lunches, take them to school, pick them up, even while I was working and we were open. And I thought, wow, that's, that's, this is going to be something I'm going to have to do that for the next 12 years. 
And then God said, no, you think that's hard? Wait a minute. I got something coming for you. And so then came the homeschooling. And, you know, we had a big enough house where they could be in separate rooms. But, you know, it's hard enough to be a mother the second time around. But then again, to have to be the teacher was brutal. But they are such good boys and such good kids that it couldn't have gone any better because thanks to them and their sweet nature. And I'm grateful that I had the time to be able to spend with them and do the schoolwork with them and get them through this tough time in a positive way. That's a wonderful gift that you've given them. Wow. And they me because without them, I probably wouldn't have a reason to go on. Yes, exactly. Oh, I know the whole city was mourning with you when we read about your daughter dying. It's just so tragic. Yes, absolutely. Your whole brand is about being a mother. So it really is. It's it's really hard to have a restaurant called Mothers and I don't even have my daughter. And it's especially hard at Mother's Day when everybody is celebrating mothers. My whole raison d'etre is to celebrate mothers and I have nothing to celebrate on that day. So it's a very tough day for me. So when I, COVID was still here this Mother's Day, I actually was glad that I didn't have to go to work and um, get through that day. I bet. My 18-year-old son has started working as a cook this summer before he goes off to college. And so I have more intimate knowledge of how hard, <laughs> yes. how hard it is in the kitchen. And so he had a question for me to ask you, which is, what is it like being a woman in the restaurant industry? Well, you know, I was just in a meeting with a person of color who was talking about how hard it is to be a person of color in this world because you have to strive to do 10 times better than somebody else to prove yourself. And the same thing goes for women in the kitchen. Everybody doubts you. They think you're not capable. You won't be able to lift. You won't be able to hang. And you always start from a a disadvantaged position where people have preconceived notions about your abilities. And then especially when I'm working in four-star kitchens and I'm an older woman in my 30s, I really had people expecting me to fail and wanting me to fail. And so if there was a pot to carry, I never asked for help. If I had something on the stove, they might turn the burner down for their fellow males, but they'll let mine burn on the stove, you know? So there was a real, I was really put to the test a lot when I was uh, working in the kitchens and really had to be the best, twice as good Mm -hmm. as the next guy, just to show how good I can be. It's very challenging to be a woman in a kitchen. And that's why anytime a female cook comes to me, I'm eager to give them a chance because I think women are really amazing in a kitchen. Mm -hmm. We were born to juggle many balls, have the baby on our arm, answer (laughs) the phone, make the dinner and, you know, talk to the gardener or something. You know, we're made to multitask and all generalizations are false. And but, uh, you know, I think men work very linearly, very hard to do many things at the same time where I think we're really wired to do that, which makes us great in the kitchen. And some of my best cooks ever have been women. Yeah, well, that's scientifically proven. It's the corpus callosum, isn't it? That we're better at multitasking. Yeah, (laughs) and that's what you need to do in a kitchen. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I have even more respect for people who are chefs and cooks because after, you know, he comes home and he's like, you know, he's exhausted. It's a really good experience, Yes, you know, for him to do that before he goes to college. So, and he's really enjoying it. Well, I was going to say that they say everybody should work in hospitality for at least a short while so they can have respect 
for the people who are serving them in the future. Yes, exactly. It's a hard life. I know that. Oh, yes. Let's talk about downtown Portland. So for me, Mothers is like a cornerstone of downtown. You're a really important business downtown. What do you see for the future of downtown? I know it's been a, a difficult time the last couple of years. Well, you know, first of all, we have a real uphill battle in downtown Portland because we have to deal with Oregonians who have a preconceived notion that homelessness is somehow dangerous, that they don't have pity or empathy for someone who doesn't have a home. They only have fear. And that precludes a lot of people who live in the suburbs from coming downtown. And it always had. They've always balked that somebody should ask them for money. And rather than show compassion, they just show fear. So it's always been a problem. And then with COVID, the local authorities really didn't do anything about camping, um, mainly because what was the point? A, where are they going to go? They don't have a house to put these people in. So why are they going to displace them? And there was nobody coming downtown anyway. So the Portland mayor and uh, council just let sleeping dogs lie and left things the way they were. Well, now they want to try to revitalize the city, but they still haven't figured out what they're going to do to provide housing assistance and care for these people that have been living in tents for the last year. So downtown Portland is a bit of a mess, but it is starting to get cleaned up. And, you know, half the problem is that the landlords, I mean, I hose my street every day. I pick up the garbage in front of my place every day. If the people who own the properties or rented the properties would come to their properties and take care of it, people would be less apt to settle there and might find a more place that's better for them to land. So the city's now waking up. I think it's going to wake up each with each board that comes down. I feel that we are an example and that we will all rise with the tide. And if our windows stay safe, others will fall in line. And, you know, we put the window, the boards up on our windows, not just because of vandalism. We got our board, we got our windows broken, whether there's a protest or not. <laughs> it's just that we weren't here to, to you know, keep the space alive. Yeah. We, were, we were, quote unquote, dead. Mm-hmm. for a year. Mm-hmm. So why why have the windows and have the vulnerability? But now that they're down, I think others will follow suit. And I think that as more events start happening downtown, more people will come downtown because they're not, it's the only place they're going to be able to see their concerts that, you know, at the Moda Center, it's the only place where the Blazers are going to play. They're not going to go play in Lake Oswego. Right. So I think that as more things start to happen downtown, everything will start getting revitalized and Portland will come alive again. It's not the end of the city and it's not the end of cities everywhere. Society has not collapsed with COVID. <laughs> um, you know, if it didn't collapse with 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, we will come back. Portland will come back. And I mean, if housing prices or housing sales are any indication, people are not moving away. Right. Portland's not burning to the ground. No. <laughs> right. No. Exactly. No. Well, I think it'll be a great start to have mothers open again. And that's, yeah, I'm so glad you survived the pandemic and that you're able to come back. Me Let's too. See. And, you know, Saturday market is also back. And you should see the traffic is real heavy down here. Yeah, great. So let's talk a little bit about your philosophy of food and zero waste and recycling and what you'd like to see companies and individuals do for a sustainable food system. Well, with a name like Mother's, we better not throw anything away (laughs) because like any good mother, we manage to have leftovers and ways to use what we've got. 
So, you know, oftentimes I'll have gleaners contact me and say, hey, do you have any leftover food? We'd like to, uh, you know, give it away. But the thing is, we don't. I make sure that we use everything and, you know, some trim will go into the stock or potatoes that didn't sell at breakfast become hashed potatoes the next day in our salmon hash. So biscuits that aren't given away at dinner become biscuits and gravy the next day. So everything about what we do is motherly. And then we want to take care of Mother Earth. So the minute composting became available for restaurants, we found a hauler that was willing to pick up our compost. And why would we throw away a carton when it can be recycled? We use compostable straws because if anything hurts this ocean, it's those plastic straws. We use recycled paper, paper bags. First of all, it's a mandate in Multnomah County, which is really great. I'm glad that the city did that. But we happily fall in line and would have been doing it whether the city mandated it or not. So just the essence of what we do is motherly. And we take care of our people, of the earth, and of the food we serve. When I was working at Lespinas in New York City, one of the dishes we had was a roasted vegetable skewer. And we would trim the vegetables, the beets, the celery root, the carrots, so that they were perfect squares on the skewer. You saw this rainbow of gorgeous root vegetables on a skewer. But what would make me sick is that we would throw away all this, the stuff we trimmed off. And as I'm throwing it away, I say to myself, I will never just cater to the filthy rich. I will never throw food away in the restaurant I run. I will never throw something away just to make something pretty on a plate. It just is antithetical to the universe and my essence. So I vowed then not to just serve those that could afford to throw away food and to serve all who appreciate that it's been farmed, it's been raised, it's been loved till it got to our door. It deserves respect. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And I think that it's been hard during the pandemic because there's so much more plastic being used and with all the takeout containers and as somebody who cares about the environment, it's been hard for me personally. You know, you want to support the local restaurants, but then you end up with all this plastic. You know, Well, I do have to tell you that I even went to plastic containers that while plastic are, are reusable. And I got these black plastic containers that have a hard lid. Number one, they're easier to eat out of instead of the ones that decompose on the way to your house. I had used to use compostable containers, but they didn't carry the food. They literally fall apart. But these plastic containers, I've been using them to pack my kids' lunches because A, they keep your chips from cracking. So you put their chips in there and they don't break because the lid is hard enough. And they put their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in there because they don't get smashed and you don't have to use plastic bags. So when we had our to-go and delivery going, I had a message on there that says, A, please reuse these. They're great. And they're microwavable. So I just think people need to get in the habit of, I don't throw away quart containers or pints that I get at New Seasons or local markets. I reuse them for storing my leftovers and for packing lunches and other things. Yeah, definitely. Are those the black ones with the the clear plastic? I keep those too. They're versatile. (laughs) Or if you get food that happens to come in a paper container from a Chinese restaurant, for example, and it's falling apart, I move it into those containers to keep in my fridge. So I think we need to just get into the idea that actually these are reusable. We don't have to throw them away. They're great for taking lunch and meals to work. 
Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how you're involved in your community and how you use your restaurant spaces for causes you care about. I remember not too long after the election when there was a lot of activism starting up in Portland. And I remember that you hosted an event there, at least one event. Um, So yeah, let's talk about that. Well, I feel very thankful that I have a space and the power to use that space for causes I believe in. And I feel very lucky to be have been given a voice to be able to help influence others with the ideas I believe in. How many mass shootings are there going to be in this country before people take action? So one of the things I've used my space for was Mothers for Gun Sense where we would have meetings and try to figure out ways to to just at least require licenses to get a gun or do a background check is all we ask. We're not saying no gun should exist, but a background check couldn't hurt. I also use it for political causes I believe in. And so if a candidate it runs on a platform that I feel is democratic and fair, well, then we let them use our space for fundraisers. I've done many fundraisers for Basic Rights Oregon, you know, No One 36, No One 9, all these different measures that we're trying to pass to limit the LGBTQ community and their rights. We had events to help raise money to fight those terrible bills. Even our windows during the shutdown When I was going to board up the windows, it was important for me not to just have boards on, but for the boards to convey a message that is important and that I believed in, that it is cohesive with the motherly view. And I worked with one of my employees, Sochi Rukakabra, and she and I came up with the idea that we would do boards that honor the children who were murdered by the police, children of color. So we had their portraits up on our windows. We told their story so that we could help keep their memories alive and we could raise awareness about the horrors that are being caused by the police around the country on people of color. You are a real role model for business owners in the in the community, I think. That's great. Well, it's just, you know, not everybody gets a voice. And, and I really, actually, I, I believe we all have the power and mm-hmm. we can all affect change. If only we believed we could affect change. And I just really believe I can affect change in whatever small way I can put it out there and hope maybe I'll change a person's mind and that can have a ripple effect. So I think we all need to believe in our own power. I just have learned to believe in mine and I have a really big space that can be used when it's not operational. Another thing we did was Don't Shoot Portland used our kitchen while we were closed to cook for the homeless over the holidays. Oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, I've got it. Let me share it. That's it's wonderful. not just for us. It's very motherly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I love it. Yeah. That's kind of how I started podcasting too, is to share my platform and right. after George Floyd was murdered. So yeah, it's really important to me. So mothers is a really special place for my family. I was there with my husband when he turned 50. I have a picture of you with him. I'm sure you don't <laughs> remember all the pictures. And I also have taken two friends there blindfolded for their birthdays. <laughs> and took off their blindfolds when we were in mothers. So yeah, just a lot of wonderful family memories. So what are some of your favorite memories of special occasions that you've seen celebrated there? Well, one very moving time was when Thomas Lauderdale, who's the leader of Pink Martini, lost his sister. She died and his mother really wanted mothers 
for a place for the family to come. And they wanted it on a day we were closed. And, you know, normally my rule is I don't open the restaurant on a day we're closed. We need our Sabbath. But when Thomas Lauderdale kind of begged me, said, look, this is what my mother really wants. I said, okay, then I shall do it. It was meant a lot to me to be able to be there for his family and to, to provide whatever little comfort I could for his mother in losing a child. And that was before I lost my child. But, you know, I was very happy to do it. You know, we get to feed a lot of famous people. Word has spread. Another thing I do for the community is we treat artists and performers to meals here at Mother's, especially music performers, because we know that when they're on the road, they don't get a lot of good meals and we appreciate their art. And so my husband is really into music and he'll try to get in contact with various bands that come into town and say, hey, come eat at Mother's, we'll treat. And so we have fed KD Lang's band, Stevie Wonder's band. We fed Robert Plant. You know, that was a big deal for my my husband. You know, of course, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. And then some famous uh, actors come in like Jennifer Aniston or Ron Howard and many more. I can't even remember them. And I don't even, to be honest, I don't even recognize half the people because <laughs> I don't I don't watch much TV. And I um, but I leave it up to my staff to say, do you know who that is? Do you know who that is? And so. Uh, we fed um, that famous singer Smith. I forget if his name is David Smith or Paul Smith or anyway, there's a famous, he won the voice or the, some talent mm. show back then. And he's very famous and he came in and he had a tuna melt and he um, went on stage at the Moda center and said, I just ate at a lovely bistro that had the best tuna melt I've had in my life. Sam you know Smith. I mean? Sam Smith. Sam Smith. Yeah, right, right, right. yeah. And I, you know, I, I didn't expect him to say anything. I just gave it because wow. you know we appreciate his singing and what he does. But you know, it's karma. You give, you get. Yes. And so my philosophy is just give, and maybe something will come of it. If not, we had a chance to say thank you for their art, and so. Uh, that's just a handful of the people. Oh, I, I didn't know you fed them for free. That's wonderful. One yeah. time we were there, actually, I think it was for my husband's 50th. Imagine Dragons was right there. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. That's right. My son was very excited and he took a picture with the drummer and, you know, yeah. Highlight. I remember that day, actually, because my grandkids also got to sit with them. And that was before they were big. Oh, they hadn't yeah. yet played in arenas. And my husband knew he said they're going to soar. And sure enough, they did. But we like to take care, even if you're not famous, we take care Aww, of the, you know, the people that wonderful. play in, in small places, too. You've had some politicians there, too, haven't you? Like, uh, We fed Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton and her daughter this past year. Oh, and wow. then we fed uh, her even before then. We fed Bill when he was campaigning for his wife and Al Gore's daughter and the guy from Minneapolis, Al Franken, uh-huh. Nancy Pelosi. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. Yes, we have fed many politicians. We even fed the one who was the head of education, who everybody disdained. Oh, um, Betsy DeVos. Betsy. She came in, but she didn't want to be noticed. (laughs) And, you know, I feel like, you know, treat everybody with respect. And so she was there on the down low, but, and I sent her a piece of chocolate cake and she wasn't very appreciative, but anyway, um, but most, most people are, and I just, you know, I, I respect people no matter, I can't disrespect them, especially not in my establishment. I'm here to serve everybody. So yes, we even fed her. Yeah, that must have been interesting for your staff. 
You know what? She really tried to be on the down low. So I don't think they noticed. Oh, they didn't notice. Oh, yeah. interesting. Well, she looks kind of like a, you know, a suburban woman in her fifties. Yep, <laughs> right? exactly. She probably so could pass very well. <laughs> she flew under the radar. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what advice do you have to people who want to create companies, especially restaurants that care? Well, you have to care. And I see a lot of companies, you know, HR classes and stuff like that, trying to teach companies how to be compassionate or how to get people to retain people. And, you know, they try to, in a corporate way, to teach the things that just come naturally to us. And basically, I think, is be a human being and don't treat your people like a number or that they're disposable or replaceable cherish each one and their what they can bring to the company and the cause. One of the things I've learned is somebody may not be cut out for one thing, but they might be cut out for another. So don't just say, oh, you're not good, goodbye, but try to find another place for them within the company where they may fit and treat people with humanity. And I mean, I treat them like they're my kids. So I think that if you treat people well, they will respect you and treat you well and think twice before dealing or taking from you or talking bad about you. Treat them well and you'll get their, you'll get their devotion and loyalty. Wonderful. My final question is, what are you most excited about as you reopen? What are you excited about for the future? I'm mainly excited to feed people again and to see the smiling faces. You know, we opened with a really long line on day one, and I really hate li- I hate for people to wait in line. And that's why our little secret is, is that we actually open our doors 15 minutes before the time says, before it says we open, because I hate for people to have to wait in line. And if I open on the time we say, then there is a line. So, but to see all those people wanting to eat our food, it's so rewarding and it just is so fulfilling. And it's, I am so thankful that I get to live my dream of feeding people. And I'm so glad people want to eat the food we want to make. So I'm just really glad to be back. And I pray for this world to be get, get back and for the deaths to stop and for there to be peace and love. Really, I just, I just wish that for everybody and health. And I hope that we can get back to a healthy uh, way of living. And, and maybe we've learned a lot from COVID. We've learned to slow down a bit. And I'm taking our reopening slowly by not opening every day of the week. We were open seven days a week, 364 days a year. I hope that we'll take some lessons from COVID and slow down a bit. Oh, and that's I know good. I'm going to try. Yes. Actually, I thought one more question, which is, I know one of your mothers of the month, Spanky Herring, from many years ago. So uh-huh. what's, who's your first mother of the month with your reopening? You know, I have to be honest, we're not going to do a mother of the month initially. Because we had to pare down the menu and we have to kind of keep things limited because we're closed so many days. We're closed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We can't have food hanging around. Uh And so the bigger our menu, the more food sits and we couldn't have that. So we're limiting our menu and we're going to feature a motherly dish every week once we ramp up. So I don't have anybody lined up yet. Maybe it'll be just favorite hits of mother's past. Well, so you are the mother of the month. There right? you go. I <laughs> right. Every month. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, this has just been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to get back to your restaurant. Let me know when you're here. Okay. I will. I'll look Please. for you. I'll, I'll look take for care you. Of you. Okay. Right. Thank you, Lisa. Bye-bye. Bye. 
I'm so excited to return to Mothers. It was such a thrill to spend an hour with Lisa, listening to her incredible stories. If you're in Portland, support Mothers. And if you're not, you can buy her great cookbook. You can find more details about Lisa and Mothers, along with photos and a link to her cookbook on Fertile Ground Communications backslash Companies That Care podcast. Next week, I interview Wendy Horn Brower, founder and chief learning officer of Intune Collective. Wendy coaches people leading change and helps them become more conscious, confident, and connected in how they work with their colleagues and teams. Thanks for listening to Companies That Care. If you liked today's episode, check out our other episodes, subscribe, or subscribe to news on my website, fertilegroundcommunications.com. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.